text read this morning. Feel free to take your seats, of course. And um, I just want you to listen for the heart of God expressed to his people uh, through discipline. Uh, the, the, the theme of each scripture will be the same. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. So Kathy's going to read Hebrews 12. Then Sherry's going to read from Proverbs 3. There's a quotation from Proverbs 3 in Hebrews 12. And so Sherry will highlight that for us. Anna's going to read from Psalm 119. And then Tom will read from Revelation chapter 3. So come on up and read, guys. Thank you for your willingness. Hebrews 12, 3-15. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which was addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scorns, scorches his every, every son whom he receives. It is for the discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respect them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the fathers, the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seem best for them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame and may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. This is Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Psalm one nineteen seventy one through 77 It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. 
and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Revelations 19 through 21. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and I will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So a few weeks ago, Nate preached a sermon. Uh, The title of that sermon was The Definition of Love. And Nate was seeking to uh, demonstrate to us through uh, a text in First John that God himself is the definition of love. He, he, he says in his word, God is love. And so, uh, love is where, or excuse me, God is where all love comes from. Uh, you cannot understand, you cannot experience, you cannot even truly express love without any reference to God whatsoever. Uh, our culture tries to do that, of course, uh, you can take, for example, the popular slogan, love is love. And what they're saying by that is that, you know, we have some idea of love. We're going to define it as we see fit without reference to God, but that's meaningless. There, there's no such thing without love, or excuse me, there's no such thing as love without God as its source. So Nate's going to continue to expand on that series several times this year. I have the uh, pleasure of jumping into that series, which the overall series is entitled Love Abounding. So I'm going to preach from Hebrews chapter 12 today, uh, and this, the title of this sermon is Love That Disciplines, a topic that we may not often think about, but Love That Disciplines. And Nate and I hope to unify this series with this following definition of love. Love is a desire for someone to know God's goodness and giving oneself towards that end. So love is a desire to to help someone know God's goodness and then to give ourselves towards that end. I think that's a really simple but helpful way to think about how Jesus Christ has loved us and then how God calls us to love others. Jesus desired us to know God's goodness. But there was a problem. Our sin was utterly in the way. So Jesus gave of himself to rescue us from sin so that we could be brought into the goodness of God along with him. And so now we, in response as God's people, are called to desire that others would taste and see that the Lord is good, treasuring Jesus Christ. And we are called to give of ourselves. We're called to sacrificially love others so that they might treasure Christ with us, right? So love is a desire for someone to know God's goodness and then give oneself towards that end. It is very tricky to talk about love. It's very tricky. And I think part of that is because we all have very strong assumptions about what love is. We intuitively feel strongly about what we think love is. In particular, you know, as we talk about God's love, I'm I'm sure that we have strong assumptions about what God's love looks like and what God's love feels like. So before we dive into this Hebrews 12 text, let's just consider that for a moment. 
Consider your assumptions about God's love. Think of it this way. If you pray for someone, if you pray for someone to experience God's love, you pray, God, would you please show your love to this individual? What are you asking God to do? What pictures come to your mind? What do you think God would do if he showed his love to that person? How about you yourself? When do you feel most loved by God? What kind of circumstances uh, kind of picture for you God's smile upon you? Uh, I think for me and maybe most of you, uh, I feel most loved by God when circumstances are just going according to my preferences. When the sun is shining, when our body and our bank accounts are healthy, when our relationships and, and our labors are fruitful and prospering, that feels like God's smile. That feels like God loving me. Does it feel that way to you too? But what if we flip that around? What if circumstances are hard? What if we're not getting what we want out of life? What if relationships that are very important to us are painfully falling apart? What if good health is a distant memory from years past? What if you spend hours a day crying with a broken heart? What about if people close to you lie to you, mistreat you? What if you're trapped in a sin and you just can't break free? You give in again and again. You struggle. How do you imagine God's attitude towards you in those seasons? Maybe you don't have to imagine at all. Maybe that's what you're going through today. If so, how do you imagine God's disposition towards you right now? What does hardship in our lives say about God's love? Based on our texts, with what kind of attitude does God discipline his daughters and his sons? I'm sure you know this, but Christians are not exempt from hardship. Following Jesus Christ could involve your life getting worse. Christians are certainly not spared from suffering in God's providence. And I think our text in Hebrews 12 is pointing towards essentially two ways for a Christian to respond to pain. We could either view God through the pain of our circumstances. We could start with the pain and then look through that to God and draw conclusions about his attitude towards us. Or we could view our pain through the view of God's love for us. So let me restate that. If you start with your painful circumstances and you work through them to God, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be in danger of potentially drawing the wrong conclusion that God is against you. If, on the other hand, you start with a faith-filled assurance that God loves you as his child, then you can look through that to your pain and rightly conclude that every hardship is loving discipline from the Lord that God applies graciously to you to draw you to himself. And that view of God's love that view is the beautiful, comforting message of Hebrews chapter 12. I just want to pray for a moment that God would help me as I seek to communicate the Lord's truth. Father, I need you. Holy Spirit, I, I bring you my weakness. 
You who are strong in weakness, come now and speak through me. Lord, give us ears to hear your voice through your word. I pray that I would decrease so that you could increase, Lord God. Please minister to your people this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So first, as we go to God's Word, let's, let's look at the, the, the main framing of this passage and then consider the dangers that God is warning us about. So Hebrews chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's kind of the main point of this whole section. Uh, It's framed as an exhortation or an encouragement to not grow weary, to not grow faint-hearted. And then there's many reasons why we can be strengthened and encouraged in suffering. So verse 4, In your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, my daughter... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Endure what? Other translations are putting that phrase this way. Endure hardship as discipline or endure suffering as discipline. I am, I am so often amazed when I read this passage how there are no qualifiers. <laughs> there are no circumstantial like guidelines or parameters here. It's just a sweeping statement. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Endure hardship as discipline. Endure suffering as discipline. Now, verse 11 reminds us that all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, as if we needed a reminder. But when pain is lasting, when hardship deepens, when suffering stretches, it becomes harder and harder to endure, does it not? The Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are weak, and he has given us Hebrews 12 to encourage us and strengthen us in suffering. Our danger, our temptation is to grow weary. Our danger, our temptation is to let our circumstances dictate our view of God's relationship, God's heart towards us. If we slip into unbelief, we will despise the discipline of the Lord, as, as the quotation from Proverbs says. We will despise the circumstances that God has brought into our lives. If we slip into unbelief, we will grow weary. We may falter. We may stumble under God's discipline. Do you feel worn out this morning? Do you know someone who is feeling worn out this morning? Are you tempted to despise the circumstances that God has brought into your life? Are you viewing God through the lens of your pain this morning, concluding that God is against you? The Lord knows your weakness. The Lord knows that struggle. In Ruth chapter 1, the woman Naomi did just that. Um, This is a powerful example of weariness, a powerful 
example of viewing God through painful circumstances. I, I'm sure I would have done no better. Um, but this is how Naomi uh, lived her life. She was exiled from her home because of a famine, so she left her homeland with her husband, her two sons. Uh, they settled in enemy territory in Moab, and then her husband died. Her two sons died. So she was a widow, destitute, bereaved, broken. Eventually she returned back to her homeland, a hurting woman. She has this to say to the townspeople as they are like, wow, you came back. She says to her neighbors, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She had lived a hard life. And weariness in Naomi's circumstances had led to bitterness. Don't call me pleasant, she says. Call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And I want to warn you, brothers and sisters, that bitterness towards God has destructive consequences. And that's why we've included verse 15 with our reading today. Look at verse 15 of our text. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Just remember, bitterness is not just about you and God. It's not just about your attitude and your relationship with God. If it's unchecked, it has a defiling influence for many. I want to warn you, bitterness defiles God's people. God wants to rescue us from bitterness. He wants to strengthen us in weariness. If you are weary or bitter before the Lord this morning, I beg you to seek help from brothers or sisters you trust. God wants to help us in Hebrews 12. So let's ask of the text, how can we experience loss and hardship and pain and not grow weary? It seems inevitable if you walk through what Naomi walked through. How can we endure extended suffering and not become jaded or cynical or bitter towards the Lord? Obviously, this is a supernatural work that requires God's supernatural help, and that is just what he has done for us. There are many ways that God seeks to help us this morning. Let's look no further than the first two words of the passage. Consider him. To consider means just what you think it means. It means to think about to reflect on, to meditate on, to, to, to consider, to, to, to let some thought dwell within you. Consider him. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured the hostility of sinners. A verse earlier, who, who endured the cross, scorning the shame. Consider him who endured the lash, not randomly, but for you. Consider him who endured beating 
and mocking and scorn for you. Consider him whose back was torn open, whose hands and feet were pierced for you. Consider him whose red drops of blood stained the cross, were soaked into the ground beneath him. Consider Jesus, the one who did not shrink back from suffering, who did not shrink back even from death for you. And most of all, consider consider him who accepted the horrible burden of your sin and rightly received the furious anger of God on your behalf. Consider him who cried out in agony, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me so that even in your suffering, you might not be forsaken as he was? Christ is our supreme example of love. Love is a desire for someone to know God's goodness and then giving oneself toward that end. Consider Christ who who loved you, who wanted you to know God's goodness and then gave himself for you at great cost to himself. Now I need to say this, brother, sister, your suffering matters. It does matter. Your suffering is not meaningless. But I beg you not to look at it until you first look at the suffering of our Savior. Please. Follow Hebrews 12.3 and consider him who endured hostility from sinners for you. Secondly, our passage encourages us to consider the nature of sonship. Consider what it means to be God's son. Consider what it means to be God's daughter. This is just the main analogy of the passage. I'll just read 5 through 9. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what child is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? It's obvious to us that a mother or father who loves their children will correct them. We know this. It is not loving to let the foolishness and the waywardness of young children go unaddressed. Wise parents have have plans. They have goals. They have dreams for their children. They want their children to grow in maturity, to grow in relationships, to grow in productivity, to grow in righteousness. And parents anticipate what lies ahead for their children They take corrective action when necessary to move their children off of bad paths and aim them on good paths. Loving parents correct their children. 
loving Father's discipline. We know this. We want this. How much more should we expect loving correction from our Heavenly Father who has good plans for us, who knows what is best for us, who wants to produce righteousness in us? I've got to say, this this has to be a painful topic for, for some people. If you've had an earthly father who never corrected you or an earthly mother who who never disciplined you, and that wasn't love. That was neglect. That's abandonment. Or you may have had an earthly father or mother who corrected you with just pure selfishness, unchecked anger, abuse. Now hear me, that that wasn't love, and that was not your fault. That was not love, and that is not your fault. That was wickedness. God hates abuse. The sin of a father or mother's neglect and the sin of a father or mother's abuse are terrible evils because they both tell horrific lies about the nature of God's father, father's love for his children. God is not like that. God will never abandon his beloved kids with indifference. He will never strike his children with the ultimate wrath that they once deserved. If and only if you are God's child, no wrath remains for you because it all fell on Jesus Christ. When he said, it is finished, he meant it. There's no wrath left to destroy God's children. But conversely, if you are not God's child this morning, these promises of Hebrews 12 do not apply to you. These promises are for God's family only. And so if you are not part of God's family this morning, I appeal to you by the mercies of Jesus to be reconciled to God through faith in his atoning sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ. You can speak to me about that. You can speak to Pastor Don about that. Speak to any of our members about that. We want everyone here to experience the loving hand of God as your heavenly father. The best way, the most encouraging way that I want to approach our text now is to consider the outcome of God's discipline. Consider the outcome. Where is discipline going? What is ahead for the child who is disciplined? Let's read verses 10 and 11. Speaking of earthly parents, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, the Father, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, earthly fathers, at their best, when we have our heads on straight, we discipline our kids as seems best to us. But... The discipline of God is always better. It's always better. God always disciplines us for our good. No matter what hardship or suffering you are called to walk through, God is faithfully at work in the midst of that as a father for your good. This is why in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, the man who was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery in Egypt, 
that Joseph could tell his formerly treacherous brothers, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good because the discipline of the Lord is always working for our good. This is partly why Paul writes in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, that is his children, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And part of his purpose for his children is to discipline us, right? For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share his holiness. The prize of discipline is holiness. When you endure discipline through faith, you get to be more holy. Are you excited about holiness this morning? I ask that someone somewhat ironically, somewhat facetiously, because if you're like me, maybe not. Maybe we need more from this text to convince us that holiness is a prize worth suffering for and that holiness is a payoff worth enduring hardship for. I think it's here. Let's, let's take verse 10 and then let's connect it to verse 14. So look at verse 10 and then look at verse 14 with me. Verse 10 says, He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And then look down at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now this is talking about progressive sanctification, God at work in our lives, making us more like Christ. We're not talking about justification here where God declares us legally righteous. We're talking about sanctification. So in that sense of sanctification, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you don't have holiness, you don't get to see God. If you don't have holiness, you cannot enjoy your heavenly Father's presence. Holiness provides access to God himself. So follow me here. Discipline leads to holiness. And holiness leads to God. Therefore, God's discipline leads to God himself. If you are God's child... When he brings hardship into your life, he's not pushing you away in disgust. He's for you. He's not against you. He's in the tender process of of opening your eyes to see him better, removing barriers between you and him, drawing you to himself in love. Discipline leads to holiness, and holiness leads to God himself. Look at the verse again, verse 10 again. He disciplines us for our good that we may, here's a precious word, share his holiness. Possess it together. Enjoy it together. The discipline of God brings the child and the father together in holiness. They share it. So can you see how we must not view God through the the pain of our circumstances? We must not let circumstances dictate our view of God's relationship to us. Can you see how we must view God first, view his love for us, and then see our circumstances? Remember, love is a desire for someone to know God's goodness and giving oneself towards that end. 
God loves his children. God wants his children to know and enjoy his goodness. And God gives of himself both to reconcile us to himself in Christ and to discipline us, to bring us into his presence, to bring us into his goodness. I love the words of Proverbs 3. I'm going to read them again. This is verses 11 and 12, as as Sherry read earlier. My daughter, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the daughter or the son in whom he delights. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons and daughters. He's removing sin from our lives. He's removing obstacles that have kept us away from him. He's equipping us to see him better, to enjoy him more deeply, to have richer fellowship and communion with our heavenly father. So don't grow weary. Don't grow bitter. Don't be afraid of suffering. Don't shrink back from hardship. God is in the midst of it, drawing us to himself. If I really get this, if if you really get this, if we really together believe that there's no pain that is outside of God's good purposes for our life, it's going to free us up to be fearless in our sacrificial love for others. I don't know about you, but fearing pain, fearing hardship, fearing inconvenience handcuffs me. It often holds us back from sacrificially loving others, from sharing with others selflessly. If love is a desire for someone else to know God's goodness and then giving ourselves towards that end, we will be unleashed to do that if we are not fearful of suffering. We can give of ourselves fearlessly and sacrificially that others might know God's goodness with us. When we get a good grip on God's love expressed to us through discipline, that allows us to follow our Savior, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured hardship. And God brought him near, and it was worth it. It was worth it. Jesus was not afraid to suffer for us because he was utterly convinced that God's love would bring greater joy on the other side of the cross. Jesus wanted us to know God's goodness with him, and he's done what we could never do on our own by giving himself to bring us to God. And so now we are free to be a people who follow our Savior by giving of ourselves, that others might know God's goodness with us for all eternity. The love of God frees us to love others. We can love because he first loved us. Let me just pray for us, and then we will turn our attention uh, to a time of corporate prayer. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love. Lord, help us to receive your love in the way you intend it. Lord, help us now as we pray together in a moment um, to, to respond to you.
to simply hear your voice and respond to you. Lord, I pray for your comfort for us as we suffer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.